Um, Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Uber Neuro, the podcast designed to explore the world of neurodiversity, and you'll see why I say that nervously. Um, and the purpose of this podcast, of course, is to interview amazing adults with uh, various uh, neurodiverse challenges, um, neurodiverse and in inverted commas. And uh, the purpose of that is to help people just like my son, who was diagnosed with autism uh, earlier this year, to find their place in the universe and see that they have a future uh, doing whatever it is they wish to do. Joining me today, wow, 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 I'm really excited. Hold on to your seats because I have a feeling this is going to be a truly fascinating interview, is the incredible uh, Elizabeth Guest. Elizabeth, should I be addressing you as doctor, by the way? I don't really care. Fine. Elizabeth Guest, welcome to the show. Hello. Uh, Tell us, I, I'm going to describe you as, um, I've, I've already forgotten what I was going to describe you as, polymath, uh, seeker of truth, and... Um, problem solver. Problem solver, that's what we said. Why don't you tell us a bit more about yourself? Right. Well, I've lived quite a while. <laughs> Pleased to hear that. <laughs> yep. I went to a European school in the Netherlands. Right. And learned to speak several languages. Yep. Understand several languages. Yep. Um, did a first class honours maths degree in Edinburgh. Right. First class honours, right, in maths. Yep. Okay. Then went and did a PhD in artificial intelligence. Wow. In machine vision. Wow. And that work was state of the art for at least 20 years. Blimey. Then I went and pretended to be a linguist in cartoon for 18 months. Right where I was analysing um, unwritten languages. Wow. Or recently written down languages. Wow. Um, after six months, I admitted that I wasn't really a linguist, but nobody would believe me. <laughs> That's an incredible problem to have. So you weren't, you weren't a linguist, but they wouldn't believe you. No. You were obviously so good at it. That I really just... up as I went along. <laughs> Amazing, blimey. <laughs> okay, and what happened after not being a linguist in cartoon then? Well, then, then I became then then I became an academic. Right, of course. Did a postdoc for a couple of years, then became a lecturer. Wow. Um, built a little bit of a reputation for solving impossible problems. Wow. Which is what I did for my PhD as well. I did things like recognise how to recognise people carrying weapons on the street and explosives. That sounds intense. Um, how to recognise defects in railway lines as they come off the production line. Wow. Stuff to do with pedagogy, learning theory. Wow. Um, stuff to do with computational linguistics, all kinds of things. Yeah, normal everyday stuff. I wasn't a good academic. <laughs> Okay. Most academics are supposed to know more and more about less and less. <laughs> right. Whereas I always know more and more about more and more. Yeah. Amazing. Like I, I kept getting into trouble for not honing in on something, <laughs> but for going all over the place. But the advantage of going all over the place was I came up with very novel solutions to problems. Yes. And you must have been a very interdisciplinary mind to try and contain in normal academic circles, I can imagine. Yes. Yes. I can imagine yeah. if you'd have had a course advisor or a dissertation or a PhD advisor, it must have been quite a frustrating role for them. Because well, the PhD was okay because I had a problem to solve. 
Yes, okay. Nobody else had managed to solve. Right. And I was able to break it up into three separate problems. Right. Which meant that if I got stuck on one problem, I just moved to the next one. Right, okay. Amazing. And I rotated around them all until I'd solved them all. Wow. But it also meant I didn't get bored because there was always a, a new problem I could try. Wow, amazing. So when did you first discover the, the, uh, the specific challenge you had? Well, I got a diagnosis because work was falling over. I was a university lecturer by this point. And nobody knew yep. why. Um, and at the same time, somebody who I knew in Edinburgh, um, who'd been diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome at the age of three, yeah. got to about 16. And my friends in Edinburgh said, do you think you might not have Asperger's syndrome? Ah. I'd already suspected for a while by that point, because I'd been supervising students doing projects to do with computerism and autism. Right. So I found out about the diagnostic criteria and they seemed to fit. Hmm. But when I mentioned it to the occupational health doctor, he just poo-pooed it. Hmm. But then when friends from Edinburgh were saying, then it's kind of made it more real. And at that point, I told my GP who put me on the diagnostic pathway. Wow. And what age was this again, remind me? Because this was in your 20s, did you say? This was in my 30s. Okay, so up until that point, you'd had no diagnosis, and yeah. obviously you were just cruising just through. muddling through. Muddling through, muddling through. So then you got your diagnosis, and uh, what happened next? Um, well, the first thing that happened was that things started to fall into place. Yeah. Is that I knew why certain things had happened and what had gone wrong, and I understood better. Yes. And it was actually quite a relief to realise that as far as autism was concerned, I was actually quite normal. Yes. So that was quite a relief. And, and how did you... But it did I mean, stop the problems at work and I managed to stick, stick there for another 10 years. It stopped the problems at work, did you say? Yeah. yeah. So problems at work being social interaction-based problems or what sort of... Give us and various communication misunderstanding. Yes kind of things once once they started putting some reasonable adjustments in place yes um things sort of calmed down yes and then for a while i was dubbed the research star of the faculty so the what the research star star yeah research star amazing of the faculty wow and and so Obviously, those reasonable adjustments helped in academic life, um, and you were able. You said you were able to stick that out for another ten years. The rest of life was that um, changed in any meaningful way, or I managed to get some home support, right? And I got disability benefits as well. So it, it must have. Felt... I didn't really need the disability disability benefit because I was on a good salary, right? But it but did they, help. Yeah, and also it's it's nice. I think it's important that the support is there, at least yeah. whether you need it or not at that moment in time, you could have needed it and then it would have been there for you. Yeah, yeah. these were the days before money went crunch at the councils. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so from that happening next, you know, obviously we were speaking in the preamble um, before we started recording about how your own view and journey has changed over the years. Um, 
Well, I left, ended up having to leave academia. Right. Don't really want to go into reasons for that. Fine. Um, but then I decided to set up my own company. Yes. And at the time, I had no idea whether I would manage to run my own company. In fact, a logical appraisal of it suggested no. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought, well, I'm not going. I'm not going to really know until I try. And was that? I mean, your own logical appraisal was telling you no, but deep down, you thought, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to. Well, take basically, your logical appraisals aren't always right. Yes, indeed. Because you never have all the information. Correct. So, although the logical appraisal said this isn't going to work, mm. I th it was a case of, well, I've got nothing to lose. Yeah. And I don't know whether it's going to work. And I, don't, I cannot know for sure whether it's going to work unless I try. Yeah, amazing. Which is quite an interesting, quite an interesting position for a scientist to find herself in. Because you're experimentally that's that's the scientific method right there but equally this is about your livelihood you probably wanted more surety you'd left probably i imagine the financial safety of academia because obviously yeah if you're if you're in academia operating at a reasonable level it, it doesn't pay terribly. It was on a good salary yes. yeah so that must have been you know it must have felt like a real jumping off a cliff moment you know it must have felt really terrifying and exciting i mean how did you can you remember back to those sorts of that sort of those few months it's it, it got to the point where i didn't have any choice right so at that point you're you're committed you're in you've got to go yeah. you've just got to... yeah i had no choice it was a case of try yeah, it yeah. and see so tell us about that's the why i said yeah. i had nothing to lose yeah absolutely so you went full into it and tell us about the business you've grown since then well it's not managed to grow much we're still <laughs> struggling Okay. Not very good at running businesses. No, fair enough. But we're hanging on. Yes. Um, basically, we do consultancy and training around autism. Amazing. We go and do workplace assessments. Yeah. Autistic employees who are struggling or yep. whose managers are struggling with them. Mm -hmm. um, and we analyse the autism. Yeah. Figure out what the underlying issues are. Mm -hmm. And then make appropriate recommendations. Amazing. Which can be a mixture. Uh, things for the managers to do. Yep. Bits and pieces of software. Yep. And quite often things for the employee to do as well. I have a feeling you're going to get a lot busier because uh, the way I see autism permeating and the the ND word that we'll talk about in a minute, the way I see that permeating corporate consciousness if you like if there's such yeah. a, uh i see you getting busier not less busy more busy because it is well, permeating dramatically do you agree well i've basically developed a way of figuring out an autism profile right so it goes through sensory issues cognitive issues executive functioning Amazing. processing issues whether or not they've got exposure anxiety all kinds of things yeah and to a yeah. company you know if they've got a member of staff who's new or been there a long time if they're valued and valuable to that company the best result is that everyone's happy yeah well so. the, the, i think the most important part of it is that because i'm able to get underneath the autism to what the underlying issues are yeah i can then describe the underlying issues and say right you need to do this this and this and that makes more sense to the employer yeah. And also to everyone else working, because suddenly they understand why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
yeah absolutely amazing they understand the specific issue that's causing the problem and then they can solve it hopefully yeah yeah Uh, it's always the case of if you actually know what issue it is you're facing yeah you can resolve it's a lot easier to find a solution you know the problem with autism is it's just too broad and every autistic person is, has different with a different set of underlying issues. Yeah, there's no template that no. everyone for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And although, you know, people will train on, you know, strategy, if you're an autistic person, you need to do this, this and this. I can tell you it's no fun being on the receiving end of those strategies. Yeah, no, sure. You know, you need to get to know the person. You need to get to know the actual difficulties that the person has rather than the generic difficulties. Yeah, indeed. And you need to know why they've got those difficulties. Amazing. Um, so let's just move on if that's okay to, I mean, that's an incredible business. I genuinely think you're going to get busier because I think companies are more aware of and more keen to resolve and facilitate solution. So I the definitely thing, think- The thing is though, is we've been to loads of companies, you know, including IT, this is a stereotypical one, but including law firms and accountants. Mm-hmm. You know, just about anything. And doesn't matter what sector it's in, mm. the people we talk to can always identify people that they have who are quite possibly on the autistic spectrum. Yeah. And they are actually managing them fine. Right. Amazing. You know, so if you have a good manager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they will find a way to manage that employee despite despite their differences sadly not everyone has a good manager or or not yeah. sadly in your case because if everyone had a good manager you wouldn't have a job i suppose yeah you know? so thankfully there's loads of inept managers uh, yeah we do tend to meet the good managers <laughs> yeah. the bad managers don't call us in well and and i was just going to say that doesn't mean everyone you work with is inept but it may be yeah. that some of the people around them are um so just very uh, thank you for that let's just talk for a couple of minutes if you will mindful uh, of uh, the time um talk to me about because we talked about this in the preamble if you wouldn't mind tell us um what you told me about neurodiversity right the thing with neurodiversity is that it it says that society needs to adapt wholly to the neurodiverse person yes now i'm autistic and my autistic is sufficiently severe that all i can say to that is it is impossible for society to fully adapt to me right and therefore neurodiversity just does not work yes it does not take the needs of the non-autistic person into account right you know, because of this neurodiversity stuff, we keep getting um, requests. And quite sometimes the employee has written a, a list of reasonable adjustments a mile long. Yes. That can't possibly be implemented. Yeah. Because they suddenly want all their barriers taken down, but they don't recognize that that actually builds barriers for everybody else. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Yeah. You know, so for me, it just does not work. The other problem I have is that a lot of neurodiversity people concentrate on the social model. Mm. Now, I have question marks about how the social model is used for autism. I don't think it's useful for autism because what tends to happen is that autistic people get looked down on 
quite often patronised, right. seen as inferior. Yes. Because you've got to make all these adjustments for them. And because they need all these adjustments, they're not equal with everybody else. Yeah. It's... So instead of the adjustments bringing people up to everybody everywhere else, somehow having to accommodate them pushes them down below everybody else. It's really interesting. And it also, there's something else about it as well that I don't like. And that is because of this idea that you break down the barriers, you stop, you, you basically prevent the person figuring out how to overcome the barriers. Interesting. Very interesting. So what but, ends up happening is the person is stuck where they are. So the best thing for someone with autism sensory disorder from your perspective is to for everybody you know for reasonable adjustment you know well, you some, need to figure adjust- out what those underlying issues are yeah and then make appropriate you know and then do you, you basically is where is this person yeah right what what they, what barriers can they overcome themselves maybe with help yep and what um adjustments do they need what aids do they need in order to bring them up to the level of everyone else. Yeah. And it has to be a combination of the two. Amazing. And there has to be the view that people can mature, that people can grow, that people can move forward. Yeah. You know, autism isn't like um, having a leg amputated. Yeah. You know, if you have a leg amputated, that leg is gone. It's yeah. not going to come back. It's not going to change. Yeah. So you make the adjustments based on the fact that that's, that's now a static problem. Yeah. Or pretty static. You know, prosthesis will have to be adjusted and all that kind of thing. But it's basically, it's a problem with a solution. And, you know, the person isn't going to grow a leg. No. That's a very good analogy, Elizabeth. Yeah. Whereas yeah. autism is a developmental condition. Yeah. which means there is still room for development. Right. And we actually sat through a talk about the transition between primary and secondary school. And I was completely shocked because it was about making that transition as easy as possible. And it lost complete sight of the idea that the transition from primary to secondary school was an opportunity to mature an opportunity to grow. Yeah. So these kids were basically were denied that opportunity. Wow. I'm not saying you shouldn't ease the transition, but yeah. what I'm saying is there shouldn't be a one size fits all solution. Yeah. You need to look at the individual child and push them to the extent that they can be pushed at that point. Yeah. That's <laughs> quite, and, and that's a really interesting point, you know, because it is a very individual experience and therefore, the best response, the optimal response, is a very individual response, as yes. opposed to anything that seeks to uh, that seeks to uh, you know bundle things together. And 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 I, I totally take your point. And, and it should all be geared towards personal growth, maturing, yeah. Yeah. and moving people forwards, yes. not leaving them where they are. Unfortunately, actually, you, moving people forwards. You've seen our political spectrum. You know the money that's available. It's it's not going to happen, is it? Really? Well, it's not going to happen from a government perspective, certainly. Well, Maybe. that's what we well, see. What I'm trying to do, 
Um, I'm not getting any recognition for it at all. Yeah, yeah. He's trying to figure out a a mechanism for figuring out what that autism is, and b find out ways of moving them forwards. Mm. So, and also figure out ways of interacting with people on a more equal level. Mm. You know, so they're they're fully in control. It's more a mentoring or maybe teacher-student relationship rather than parent-child relationship. So that we actually work with people, coaching them to move them forwards. Yeah. Based on the understanding of where they are and what their autism is and what they could, could become capable of in the future. Yeah. And that's never going to be a problem. The problem that we've got is, is what do we do with mental health? Right. As in... Because the biggest problem is that a lot of autistic people come with mental health difficulties because of their experiences in life. And at the moment, there's very few, well, there's only one technique that has been proven to work for autism, and that's CBT. Right. The problem with CBT is it doesn't work on all autistic people. There are many that are resistant to it. Wow. And the reason they are resistant is because if you have an autistic person who actually sees the world reasonably objectively, trying to have a more positive spin on it doesn't work. Mm. Yeah. Because they're seeing the world as it is. Yeah, they, they don't have a positive or negative judgment against it. Yeah. Right. Wow. I mean, you know, in terms of food for thought, Elizabeth, this podcast has got to be the the most food for thought in 20 minutes that i've ever encountered because you know as a new parent of someone with asd uh, i've you know been absorbing and absorbing and and this has changed a lot of it um and you know as a parent also i don't want to pander no definitely so, don't do that no exactly i want to challenge and i want to you know uh force the growth but not in a negative force way in a in a positive kindness yeah. based force way you know in the same way as, as parents we, we we want our children to learn things you know and well, i think well let's put it this way while they are while they are at school in education hmm. support is available hmm. once they leave education yeah support vanishes yeah i don't think it gives anybody a service yeah. or helps anybody to support them to the hilt all the way through education yeah. only to then abandon them yeah no i completely agree completely agree you know we're, and we you you're know setting and, them up to fail aren't you yeah and we find you know that because things have moved on and people are being diagnosed earlier they don't mature as well by the time they get to the end of education as the people who are di who have missed all that a bit older and have been diagnosed later. Mm. The ones diagnosed in adulthood because they've had to fight their way through often have more resilience mm. than the ones die. You know, they basically they have to develop resilience in order to cope with the world. Yeah. But if you give them too much support, that resilience doesn't can't develop. No, absolutely. And this resilience is a case of being a bit more intelligent about the support that's given. Yes, indeed. Um, indeed. I think you're absolutely right. Um, uh, I think, I think that addresses a discomfort that I've sensed. 
you know, where you want to look after people, but sometimes the worst thing, you know, the, I, I, I often remember that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Um, and this is a very good example. Of yeah. that. Well, we, we recently did a workplace assessment for somebody who's recently out of university. Yeah. Been supported all the way through school, all the way through university, had masses of support at university. Yeah. Gets into a job, suddenly there's nothing. Yeah. And the poor guy flounders. Yeah, of course. Well, and the managers can see the potential. The managers can see that he's actually very good at his job. Yeah. But he's got an awful lot of maturing to do. Yeah, of course. So they called you in, presumably. You did the assessment yeah. and obviously gave them some recommendations. Um, yeah, and gave, and gave them some training. Amazing. Well, look, I'd love and the, to... And the training was tailored to their employee. Yeah, so that's the perfect scenario, isn't it? That's exactly yeah. what everybody wants. Um, I would love to... I mean, clearly, I think this is something that could be covered more and more and deeper and deeper. Uh, we'll have to draw an end to it there, but I'd love to check back in in a couple of months and have a part two because I think this is a massively important discussion and most of the time uh, I have discussions with people that don't go into this sort of deeper philosophical layer so that'd be really interesting um, uh, how could what's your web address how can people find out more about you what's your website um, www.aspident.com aspident a-s-p-i-e-e-n-t.com -E 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 okay and then the same but .org okay fine so we um, websites brilliant well look it's been amazing um uh i'm very grateful and i know it's uh it's, it's not conventional view but i'm very grateful for the challenging view and i i you know i'm a fan of what you've said i think a lot of it an awful lot of it makes sense and it needs to be heard a lot more I, and i'm sure i'll take some flack for that i don't really care <laughs> I'm, I'm in the same camp as you so elizabeth thank you so much for joining us uh, I'm so grateful. And to everyone else that's, uh, that's joined us, please uh, do share, um, do get the word out. Uh, we want to make sure that, especially any other 13-year-old boy who's just been diagnosed with autism that may be out there gets to hear this kind of stuff because they're not alone and they're going to be fine. They've got work to do. They've got to make stuff happen. They need to adjust. They need to get ready. And this is hopefully the start of their journey. It's certainly been the start of mine. Uh, so thank you once again to Elizabeth and um, thank you to everyone for joining us.